turn in your Bibles or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And we're going to pick up from where Pastor Brad left off last week uh, in verse 27. Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. This is what the Word of God says. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Oh Christ, we are grateful to be here, to be hearing from you, from your word. We're grateful to be able to be uh, blessed by the preaching and the hearing of your perfect word And even today, as a day that is full of rain, uh, we are grateful that the rain falls on both the just and the unjust and pray that as a result of the word that is preached today and your gospel going forth, that you might add to your number, add to your kingdom, those who are justified, those who are being sanctified and those who will glorify you. Call people to your side, save people today, even as you've saved so many of us and do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Last week, Pastor Brad walked us through the previous account of Jesus having uh, healed a man who was paralyzed and a man who Luke said was full of leprosy. But we were also introduced to a group that we hadn't encountered yet in our sermon series, and and they are the Pharisees. They enter the scene in chapter 5 and verse 17, and they show up in the vast majority of the remaining chapters we'll go through, Lord willing, as we go through the gospel of Luke. More on them later. For now... I want to take some time to highlight a few different things in order to help us understand the magnitude of what is taking place here, lest it just be thought of as just another event in the life and ministry of Jesus, which happens oftentimes, especially if you're familiar with the scriptures. If you can say, uh, these things I've known since my youth, right? You might just, okay, and this is how Matthew was called. This is how Levi, who is Matthew the apostle, this is how he was called. We just kind of Move on. It's six verses. It's not a huge account. There's not a ton of detail. And we're just kind of moving our way through the Gospel of Luke. But what I want to do is uh, show you the details that are not within the text. And that's not because I have some secret sauce. That's not because I've done some secret work. That's because I want to try to help us in 2021 understand what this text and what happened here really would have meant if we were in that time. And so we've got a lot to cover. Let's pick it up in verse 27. It says this, after this, right, after he had, conti- he had finished doing what we heard about last week in Pastor Brad's sermon, after this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, we're in the middle of tax season right now, not the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, Nobody likes paying taxes. Christians pay their taxes according to the word of God, which says we're to render unto Caesar what is his. It says that later on in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. And we do. We just don't love doing it. But we do it out of obedience. We do it because it's the right thing to do, not just to be outstanding citizens, but to be people of God. And so when tax time comes and we think of the IRS or IRS representatives, super fun, those who collect taxes, therefore tax collectors, we see them as people who collect the taxes that are owed to the government and people we quite frankly hope never to have to encounter by way of audit or the like. You need to know, thank you brother, you need to know that that is absolutely like totally different from a tax collector in Jesus' day. That's not the same thing at all with what Levi was. And so as best I can, I want to paint a picture for you of who Levi, who Matthew is, that Jesus is calling to follow him. And for that, I want to explain to you a little bit about taxation at the time of Jesus's earthly ministry and how that looked and how they rolled. 
The Roman occupation of Israel was not just a military presence, not at all, but it also involved paying Roman taxes. King Herod Antipas is the king at the time. He was the ruler of Galilee. Tax collectors would collect taxes, give them to Herod, and Herod would in turn pass them on to Rome. Now, the easiest way to explain Roman taxation in modern terms, in the ways that we think, is tax collectors were actually similar to modern-day franchisees. Now, if you have a franchise, that's not me saying you're as evil as the tax collectors, not at all. Bear with me, it's just a business model. Uh, When someone invests in a franchise, let's say someone decides they want to invest and become a franchisee of Panera. It's actually one of the most expensive ones to uh, partake in. They're doing so because they see an opportunity to make their investment profitable. They bring a ton of money to the table to get in on that game. And then they run their Panera believing that they can make a profit through the business dealings that they'll have over time. And hopefully not only make the money back that they invested, but be profitable sooner rather than later. King Herod would sell tax franchises, sell them to the highest bidder, and that's how you became a tax collector. You put up a certain amount of your own money uh, in order to collect taxes for a living. You say, that's so not the same as Panera. Uh, That's not the same as franchisee at all. Well, that's true. Panera is a for-profit business, but so is being a tax collector at the time of Jesus. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were way more like modern-day franchisees than they were modern-day IRS employees in the model of their business. Because there is a certain amount of money that they were to give to King Herod, and everything above that they could keep. Everything above that was gravy. In fact, flick back to Luke chapter 3, just two chapters. We'll be back to Luke 5 in a minute, but just two chapters in Luke chapter 3. So this is John the Baptist preaching repentance. Uh, Pick it up in verse 10. It says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Like, how do we, what's repentance look like? What does this even mean? And he answered them, well, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And look at verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Verse 13, he's like, hey, I got an idea. Uh, Collect no more, write this down, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And they're like, wow, we've heard from the Lord today. Because it was assumed that if you were a tax collector, it was just assumed. John the Baptist didn't look at him and go, now, well, tell me how you run, how you roll. Are you collecting more than what you should be? It was literally a foregone conclusion that they were exploiting people, that they were collecting infinitely more than they had to. And so when they're asking John the Baptist, how do we repent? He's like, I have an idea. Start here. Stop collecting more than what people owe the government. Stop taking off the top. Stop adding gravy to your boat. And so it was a foregone conclusion that this line of work, that these people, tax collectors, were always skimming off the top. Always. They collected, and there was a variety of taxes just like we have in our day and age. When I moved to Kentucky uh, in 2006, I remember registering my car and I had to pay a tangible use tax. What, pray tell, (laughs) is a tangible use tax? Are there things I can't, it's just, anyway. But back to the tax. They collected a poll tax on everyone, including slaves. They collected a 1% income tax. They collected a tax that was on one-tenth of all grain, one-fifth of all wine and fruit. There were taxes on the transport of goods, of letters, correspondence, produce, using roads, crossing bridges, and almost anything else the tax collectors could think of. There was plenty of room for larceny, plenty of room for extortion, for exploitation. There were even loan sharking. Because when people couldn't afford to pay their taxes, tax collectors would loan money to the citizens at an exorbitant interest rate. There's even accounts of tax collectors employing thugs who would physically intimidate people into paying and beat up those who refused. These are tax collectors. These aren't IRS employees. It's very, very different. So, the question is this. How do the people of Jesus' day and age view Levi, view Matthew, the tax collector. Well, they see him as a complete traitor, a complete traitor, a sellout. 
The Jewish people were pining for someone to deliver them from Roman rule, deliver them from Roman occupation, and by and large believe that taxes should only be paid to God. If you were a Jew who became a tax collector, you were a complete sellout. You literally bought into the system for your own gain. You're you're a traitor. You were considered perpetually unclean. You were known to be a liar, so much so that you were not even allowed to give testimony in a Jewish court. Completely passed over. Why don't we ask the the tax collector what he saw at the scene of the crime? Uh, Unable. Uh, Immaterial. Next. Not even an option. But let me go back to something I said kind of quickly, and let me say it again a little slower. Because I want you to make sure, I want to make sure you understand this. Tax collectors were considered perpetually unclean. And since they were considered perpetually unclean, they were unable to enter the synagogue. And since they couldn't enter the synagogue, they couldn't do, even if they wanted to, they couldn't do what God would have them do because they were a sellout. You say, that's probably not disappointing them so much. I don't think a tax collector is like super sad that he can't go into the synagogue. They made a career move, bought their way into the system. And I'm pretty sure the fiscal payoff of that outweighs the religious cost in their minds. That's probably true. But here's the question. What if they really wanted into the kingdom of God? What if they reached a point where they regretted what they've done? What if they had a a change of heart, a change of mind. They wish they'd done differently, but they can't turn back time and undo what they've done. Now what? Repentance was really, really hard for the tax collector. Uh, And rabbinical Judaism would have said it's possible, in theory, on paper... But in reality, it's, it's just not the case. Uh, repentance, what they would have required of them to do, would never allow them to leave their past in its place, would never allow them to give up what they had done. So they had basically bought into a system that they ultimately couldn't get out of. You see, I don't feel too bad for that. They did it. True. But there's no means of escape insofar as they're concerned. They are what they are. They'll die what they are. Now, uh, up here I have a, a welcome mat, as you can see. Welcome mats are f- kind of funny things. It's like the ultimate double entendre of home decor, if you think about it. Like on the one hand, it says welcome, right? Welcome, like it's clear. Welcome, but it's, it's also, here's what it's also not saying, but kind of saying. It's kind of like, you're dirty. And uh, clean up before you come. Welcome, in a minute, Right? Welcome, but wipe those feet right there. Welcome. Here's the funny thing. Uh, I was actually, when I thought of this illustration, I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll use our welcome mat. I'll just go and take it. And then I looked at, we have four welcome mats. Four welcome mats, a collective zero of which on them say welcome. No double entendre at the LaRufa home. Uh, you knock on our door and we're like, hi, yeah, you're dirty. That's why we bought the mat, bro. Start wiping, all right? Knock on the door when you're done. We'll let you know. Like, that's... All of our welcome mats, none of them say, none of them say welcome. So I had to actually go out and buy this very welcome mat. Welcome mats serve a, a purpose. You say, why are you holding up a welcome mat? Repentance, in Jesus' day, among rabbinical Jews, they had a saying. They referred to it as the gate of repentance. The gate of repentance. Which means if you, if you want to repent, you can. It's great. That enough will get you to the gate. But then you just got to start wiping Sure, you can repent. 
but just start wiping. Because you'll, you're allowed to come in as long as you're clean. Not as long as your hearts and minds are clean, but as long as you look clean. Insofar as we can kind of forget. We're not going to choose not to remember. That's what forgiveness is based on Jeremiah 31 and verse 34, right? Jesus has never forgotten your sins. Like, let's just be honest. He's either omniscient or he's not. He is omniscient. He knows all things. And so he knows all of my sin. He chooses not to remember. That's not what the Pharisees said. The Pharisees looked at the tax collector and said, it's fine. Just keep wiping. And so they would have a welcome mat in front of the kingdom of God. It says welcome. But in reality, that welcome would very rarely ever come to pass. The Pharisees viewed entrance into the kingdom of God as possible as long as you wiped your feet. Just clean up. Wipe your feet. If you have a change of mind, a genuine change of heart, great. That'll get you to the gate. Won't get you through the gate. That'll get you to the gate. Just start wiping. In reality, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, you'd never get past the welcome mat, ever. You just would spend the rest of your life wiping your feet over and over and over and over again. Particularly in a shame-based society. Where you maybe would change what you did. But it wouldn't change how people viewed you in the court of public opinion. You'll just spend the rest of your life wiping your feet. Instead of being known as the tax collector, you'll be known as the guy who was the tax collector. It's a very small change. You'll be right outside the door of the kingdom of God insofar as the Pharisees are concerned. So close, right? So close, but so far. And if you were a tax collector who willingly bought into the system that was oppressing people so you could profit from it, you wouldn't even approach the door of the kingdom of God in that type of a society. Your sin would be so caked on your shoes. There's not enough wiping in the world that you could do to make yourself right with God. You wouldn't even bother. You made your bed. Now you sleep in it. You, you chose your way. You're making your money and you're doing your thing. So you better enjoy it now because quite frankly, there's not only a hell, but a special place in hell for a person like you. Verse 27 And after this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Point number one, you need to know that few things will hinder your walk with Christ more than self-righteousness. Later in this account, Jesus is in Matthew's house, Matthew's large house that he could afford because of all the money he'd essentially stolen from citizens over the years under the guise of taxes owed. The Pharisees aren't invited to that party. It doesn't really matter because they wouldn't go if they were invited. But a party at Matthew's house was apparently hard to not notice. And they accusingly questioned Jesus' presence there. Look at verse 30, Luke chapter 5 and verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled, uh, grumbled. That Greek word is an onomatopoeia. It's an onomatopoetic term, such as like, I think we've said this before, like bees were buzzing. You're like, wow, what did it sound like? They're like, we'll read it slowly. Buzzing. Grumbling, murmuring. So what did it sound like? I don't know. Say murmur quietly like eight times. Murmur, 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 murmur. That's, that's what it sounds like. And what they're doing is they're murmuring, grumbling. But you notice, who do they grumble to? Not Jesus. Right? They don't have a question for Jesus. They have a question for the disciples. They won't approach Jesus. They grumble at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 31, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Most doctors choose their profession because, as I've asked different doctors, why do you want to become a doctor? In some way, shape, or form, there's a common denominator among 
Every medical professional, every doctor that I've spoken to, why did you become a doctor? It's not easy to become a doctor. It costs a lot of money to become a doctor. Why did you become a doctor? It takes a ton of time to become a doctor. Why did you become a doctor? Lots of different stories, but the common denominator among every single person that I've spoken to is some desire to help. Some desire to help people. They have a desire to, in some way, help make people whole. Doctors don't become doctors to help the healthy. They become doctors to help the sick. Jesus is the great physician of our souls. He came to make us whole, to make us well. And he has nothing to do with those who are healthy or who think they're healthy. In fact, Jesus roundly condemns self-righteousness, as does the rest of the Bible. His harshest rebukes aren't for the worldly. They're not for people who are acting like the world, who are of the world. His harshest rebukes throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament, are reserved for the religious elites who are hypocritical and who are self-righteous. The religious elites who think highly of themselves so much that they see themselves as above the help that Jesus came to provide for sinners. Uh, Keep your place in Luke 5 and flip 10 chapters over to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I want you to notice something uh, in verse 1 in Luke chapter 15. That's just something to emphasize the point that I made before about how people view tax collectors. Look at verse 1, Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. So you would think tax collectors would just be lumped together as the sinners, right? Tons of times throughout the scriptures, you see it's the tax collectors and sinners. So sinners encompassed everyone, but there was still this, this thought that, but surely not the, not the tax collectors. It's not, just the ta- it's not just sinners. Yeah, but it's sinners and tax collectors. And that would get people's attention. So many times as you look through the scriptures, you will see that Jesus was with the sinners and the tax collectors. Who came to hear him? The sinners than the tax collectors. It wasn't assumed that if you said the sinners came, it's like, yeah, the sinners would come. That's a big deal enough, but not, surely not the tax collectors. And so there's several times that you'll see listed among the sinners that are coming to hear Jesus is the sinners and the tax collectors. So anyway, Luke 15 has a common theme. There's three parables in Luke chapter 15. Did this at youth camp one year. We spoke, we, we spoke about the prodigal son. It was one of my favorite times of teaching ever in my life, of diving into that parable. But here's the thing. In Luke 15, there's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And they all follow this theme. Lost, found, party. Lost, found, party. Take a look. Luke 15. He told them a parable. Verse 3. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Yada, 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 he finds it. Look at verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more what? More joy in heaven over one who? Sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. More joy in heaven over over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Look at verse 10, parable of the lost coin. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one who, say it, sinner who repents. Not someone who's like had it all together their whole life or who thought they had it together their whole life. They They don't get credit in the kingdom of God for keeping it together. They get credit in the kingdom of God for repenting. For coming to their senses. For leaving the life that they had before. Because God welcomes sinners. Then finally, the parable of the prodigal son. Look at Luke 15, verse 31. This is right after the uh, brother says, you know, what gives? I've never left your side. I've always done what is right. This son of yours, not my brother. This son of yours goes out, wrecks his life, comes back. And you throw a party. What's up with that, Dad? Look at verse 31. The father says to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. True. You've you've not left. All that's mine is yours. 32. 
it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this is your, this, your brother was what dead and is alive. He was lost and is found lost found party. Self-righteousness is oftentimes the one thing that keeps people from being saved. For whom did Jesus come to save? We have that picture in our minds that's given to us in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, right? After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You say, Jesus came for all people. No, it's not one nation, not one people group. All types of people. True. Here's the thing you need to know. None of them are standing there before the throne of the Lamb declaring their own worth. None of them are standing there before the throne of the Lamb saying, I kind of had this coming. I kind of expect this is brighter than I thought it would be, but I knew I'd, I kind of knew I'd be here. Kind of a big deal. None of them are declaring their own worth. Friends, there aren't many people to whom Jesus says, I didn't come for you. If there's one thing we see from this passage, it's that even the vilest, most defiled, wretched, most unclean sinner, someone who has literally sold out, bought into a pagan system for their own gain, even that person was pursued by Jesus, was invited by Jesus. But please look at Luke chapter 5 and understand the sobering truth in verse 32. Read his words again. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. It's pretty straightforward talk. Hey, I've not come, I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. If you're self-righteous, if you're impressed by your knowledge or your upbringing, or the choices you've made, or your training, or your pedigree, if you are impressed by you, you will never be impressed by Jesus. If you're impressed by you, you will never be impressed by Jesus. He's a doctor. Healthy people don't see their need for a doctor. Sick people do. Jesus, the great physician, didn't come to help the healthy. He came to help the sick. He didn't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. That's why Matthew gets up and leaves when Jesus is called. It's not hard for him to see himself as a wretched, vile sinner. He knows that. I mean, look back in Luke chapter 5. Look at verse 27. After this, he went out. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Verse 28. And leaving everything... He rose and followed him. That's a tremendous, tremendous move on Levi's part, on Matthew's part. But it wasn't hard for him to do. He's sitting in his tax booth. He's heard Jesus speak before, no doubt. It's by, if you look in Mark, they're sitting by the seaside, by the shore. Maybe he saw the great catch of fish that we heard about a few weeks ago with Peter. People are talking about what Jesus is doing. He's no doubt aware of Jesus, but he's in a system that he chose to be in. He is no, he's not leaving. He just hears the teaching, but it's piqued his interest. He's still doing his thing. He's still collecting taxes, still doing what he's always done, still working for the man and sticking it to the man and oftentimes pocketing a lot of money for himself. And then all of a sudden Jesus sees him And says, come and follow me. Meets him where he's at. Doesn't say, come and follow me and just make sure you wipe before you come in. He says, come, follow me. And he goes. Why? Matthew's like so not impressed with himself. It wasn't that he was bored and needed a career change. He was doing really well. So how do you know that? Well, he has a house big enough to throw a big party at like a moment's notice. Kind of a big deal. 
Few things stand in the way of sinners being saved more than self-righteousness. Jesus isn't attractive to those who see themselves as good, as righteous, as godly. That's not who he came to save. Verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician. He came to call sinners to repentance. Which brings us to our second point. You need to welcome people to God as Jesus did, as they are, without any strings attached. You need to welcome people to God as Jesus did, as they are, without any strings attached. As I said before, the Pharisees had this saying, the the gate of repentance. Repentance is It's just the gate. It won't get you through. It'll get you to the gate. Now you're outside the gate, but it's still a gate. And you're still on the other side. Start wiping, keep wiping, and wiping, and wiping, and wiping. In verse 27, it says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector and just said, follow him. If you require someone to do something before they can be saved... you're probably preaching a false gospel. And instead of helping people reach Christ, you'll become a stumbling block that will keep them from him. If if you require someone to do something before they can be saved, you're probably preaching a false gospel. If you consciously think, anyone can come to Christ at, at, at any time, but deep down you think, but they'll certainly... Stop sinning first. I mean, that's right. We're glad they're here, but we got the mat for a reason. So if you'd wipe it, that would, we'd kind of appreciate that. You come in any time, wipe your feet. Something I noticed we do at our home, this just occurred to me, I meant to say this before, is I don't know if you do this. I so know we do this. That when we open the door for someone, if they're wiping their feet, we do this weird thing. And we go, no, no, don't worry. You're probably fine. And they're like, you bought the mat, bro. Like, I'm pretty sure you want me to use it. You know, and people are like, no, no, you're, you're, don't worry, you're fine. It's like, uh, you bought it, you'll probably maintain it. You'll probably replace it. It's not a stumbling block, it's just a welcome mat. They can come into the kingdom, they just got to wipe. Just do a little wiping for crying out loud. What's the kingdom of God? You going to wear that? But if you consciously think or say anyone can come to Christ at any time, but deep down you think they'll probably stop sinning first. They're going to clean up their life first. They're going to walk away from the world like, I mean, I'm sure they'll have distanced themselves from their sin to some degree. They're going to change their ways first. Even if you think that and never say it, it'll affect if and how you're able to reach others for Christ. Here's why I'm stressing this point. As human beings, I don't know if you've noticed, but we always find new and creative ways to sin against God. We don't always go back to the same things throughout time, throughout history. We usually find new and creative ways to sin against God. It comes from the same sinful heart, granted, but we find new and creative ways to sin against God. And the more creative ways we develop to sin usually the more costly they are every time. Pornography has been around for a long, long time. Never as easily accessible as it is now. Never as consistently accessible as it is now. Kicking a porn addiction is just as difficult as kicking a drug addiction, and I'd argue for a few different reasons it's probably more difficult to kick a porn addiction than it is a drug addiction. Lusting is not new. Sexual sin is not new. The ability to do it at a moment's notice is a result of our modern day and age. God saves the post-abortive mom who can't go back and change what she did. She can do this all day long. The child will not come back. God saves the seductress 
who throughout her life has intentionally used her God-given beauty to wreck her life and the lives of others. He saves the man who may still have to pay an earthly penalty for his heinous sins and crimes. And despite the lack of pardon on earth, he faces justice, he'll be pardoned in heaven. In fact, sometimes the consequence of his sin might even get him to heaven so fast. But get there, he will. He'll save the man who had a sex change operation who doesn't have the foggiest idea of what changing for Christ will look like. And here's my concern. If we place a welcome mat outside the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't look like much. It's not that big of a deal. Just wipe your feet. Just wipe your feet. It's common decency, bro. Just wipe your feet. It'll prove to be a blockade that keeps people from Jesus. Do you understand that? It'll prove to be a blockade that keeps people from Jesus. You might think it serves as a stepping stone, just something to help the sinner clean up a bit. For crying out loud, they're coming to Jesus. Do they realize that? He's God. Just wipe your feet a little. You can come in, just clean up a little. Just a step is all. It's just a step in coming to Christ. Just helping the sinner bridge the gap between him and the Savior. But we read the words of Isaiah 59.1. It says, indeed, the Lord's hand is not too short to save and his ear is not too deaf to hear. We don't need to help God reach anyone. You might fool yourself into thinking, hey, it's just a, it's just a welcome mat, bro. Calm down. It's just common decency. Just clean up a little before you enter the kingdom of God, literally for Christ's sake. But if you're saying people need to do something before they can be saved, at the end of the day, you need to understand you're preaching a false gospel. The Pharisees were preaching a false gospel. You just got to clean up a little. It's just, and it's, it's not that big of a deal. Just if you would just kind of just utilize what we've laid out there for you and just, you'll come in. Well, when am I done? We'll let you know. I'll turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the what? It is the gift of God. Not a what? Result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the salvation happens not as a result of works, but it does produce works within us. But it's not that somebody cleaned up their life and wiped their feet enough so they can come into the kingdom of God. It's that God brought them into the kingdom of God and then does a radical work in changing their life, making him look more like him and less like themselves. It's not that God doesn't care about good works. He so cares about good works. He really cares about how we act. But it's just not something we do to get into the kingdom. It's something we do because we're in the kingdom. Again, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. You say, this is Grace Fellowship Church. Do you not see the sign on the way in? We talk about transformation all the time. God changing us to be more like him. I don't think we offer a biblical counseling ministry so people cannot change. Friends, God is all about changing people to be more like him. 100%, 1,000%. And that's something he does for those who are in his precious family. It's not a prerequisite to enter the kingdom. It's a perk for those who are part of the family of God. Jesus doesn't have a welcome map, but he's a welcome banner. A welcome banner for people as they are, without any strings attached, saying, Welcome, come in. We're, we're glad you're here. Welcome to the family. You're in your family. You're, you're a worshiper just as you are. There's no sin that is a match for the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. But friends, listen to me. That welcome mat, that's a stumbling block. Because people outside the kingdom are like, I could never. There's just so much. I can't imagine how much wiping I'm going to have to. 
I, I'm not going to, I can't. My, my bad has so outweighed my good. I remember talking to an older gentleman who said, I just don't have enough years left, man. You don't know. And so what he's essentially saying is, I, right, I'm not going to be able to, it's all kicked up on there. Like, I'm not going to be able to, to clean up. I'm not going to be able to, I, my, good, my good can't outweigh my bad. And so that welcome mat serves as a stumbling block to people who are outside thinking they need to clean up their acts, straighten up their lives before they can be in the kingdom of God. But here's the other thing. This knife cuts both ways. It's actually a a two-way stumbling block. Granted, sometimes it causes people to think they have to clean up before they'll be welcomed into the family of God. But for us as Christians, watch, sometimes it causes us to lose heart to lose hope. And if you're anything like me, there's people you stop inviting to Jesus because deep down inside you picture the amount of wiping they'll have to do to enter the kingdom. And so our prayers wax cold. Our invitations don't happen as often. But in Luke chapter 5 and verse 27, here's what I want you to see. You see there it says... After this, he went out and saw a tax collector. Saw. It's a Greek word, theaomai. You're welcome. Here's what it means. Remember, this is what Jesus did to the tax collector in seeing him. You think he just happened to see him. Like, how could you not see him? Seeing is not always active, right? You just... Congrats on not being blind, right? You walk by the tax booth, you see the tax booth. Theaomai. To go to see a person on the basis of friendship with helpful intent. Jesus is a friend of sinners. So it's not that Jesus just noticed. Then Jesus, you know, busy day. Healed the leper. Paralytics walking. Super awesome. Then lo and behold... Here's the He's like, for my next trick, I'll have a tax collector follow me. Watch, it'll blow everyone's mind. Come, follow me. Boom, he comes. Thank you. Mic drop. He leaves. That's not what Jesus is doing. This was intentional. Again, Jesus, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector. He saw a person on the basis of friendship. With helpful intent, he saw this person. And said, follow me. Hey. Listen. You know that person you've wanted to be saved for so long? So, so long. But they continue in their own ways and they're just so, so, so far from the things of of God. That person. You know that, that child you raised... To know and love the things of God. But he just doesn't. She's just uninterested. Categorically. You know how you were saved later in life? And you can't go back and be a better influence on the people who are in your circles? Or you can't be a better example on the kids you had? Sometimes that looking back and wish or spending so much time watching somebody go hard after the world, hard after the things of the world, living a lifestyle that is so unpleasing to God, just full of sin, you tend to think, and I tend to think, man, if they came to Christ, I mean, yeah, God can save them, but what does wiping look like? What is cleaning up going to look like? I don't know. I probably should have that answer for them before I invite. I probably should have something laid out, some sort of a plan before I go and see someone like Jesus did with helpful intent as a friend. But that's not how Jesus rolled. He saw Matthew. He gazed intently. He went to see him on the basis of friendship with helpful intent. 
He visited him and said, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Friends, I'm convinced it's not always what people need to leave behind that keeps them out of the kingdom of God. It's the wiping upon arrival. Friends, I'm convinced it's not always the things that people would have to leave that cause us to not invite them, but it's we see them as like, wow, you can come to Christ, but gosh, I don't even know what repentance is going to look like. Like, I don't know. I can't, I don't have a plan. How does that person leave that? And like I said, as we get more and more into an age and a day that is further and further from Christ, the sins that God is going to save people from are going to be so far reaching and impact their lives in so many ways. I don't fully know what wiping is going to look like. I don't know what repentance is going to look like. I'm pretty sure God does, and I'm going to invite anyway. And instead of having a welcome mat on the floor, I want us to hold a welcome mat above our heads and say, welcome. You can come in. Welcome. You can come as you are. Just like Jesus went up to Matthew and said, come, follow me. And he just went. He didn't know it was before him. Do you understand the cost of Matthew leaving? Unbelievably high. It's costly for anybody to follow the Lord. It's costly for anybody to go. It was costly for the the fishermen, for Peter, to leave everything behind and follow him. But I got to be honest with you, at any given time, he could go back and fish. Right? No one's going to be like, you left this net here. I'm not letting you hold it again. That's not a thing. Understand Matthew. He sold out and ditched his own people so that he could become a tax collector. Now he's following Jesus, so he's ditching the tax collectors. He has one friend in the world. It's Jesus. Which is our last point. You need to remember, God can use your life as a testimony to the fact that leaving everything for Jesus is always costly and always worth it. Verse 28, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. No ability to rehire. There's no, there's no going back. This was, it better work. And here's the thing. When did God use Matthew for his glory? He clearly did, right? Let's not forget, this is the man who authored 28 chapters of what you have in your Bible right now, of the Holy Word of God. When did God use Matthew for his glory? There was certainly a cleaning process, a refining process, a process of repentance that God had in mind for Matthew from the very beginning. No question. But when did God begin to use Matthew for his glory? It's immediately after he followed Jesus. Matthew used what he had at his disposal. Money, food, a house, and friends. And he brought people, he brought his friends as close to Jesus as they could before he'd leave them, or quite frankly, before they would ditch him. He didn't have to clean up his act to put Jesus on display in a major way. And Jesus didn't wait for him to wipe his feet before he was willing to associate with him, or even willing to work through him. Just like that. Just like he went right up to Matthew to call him to follow him, he went right into his house for an extended period of time with other people who are likely very similar to Matthew, since birds of a feather tend to flock together, reclined at table with them, spent time with them. That's Jesus, also known as God, giving tax collectors and sinners a private audience, unfettered access. To him, experiencing the love of Christ from Christ himself. And so, if you're a Christian today, who's that person that the wiping process, you're like, I don't even know where like how that would, I don't know what that would be like for them. Like I used to try to reach out to them a lot, but I don't anymore. I have no idea what that would look like. I want to encourage you to offer a welcome to them, to the kingdom of God. Let them know that they're welcome as they are. Just like Jesus went up to Matthew and said, follow me. Not clean up first, but follow me. Jesus had plans for him. He was going to clean him up later. He had all these plans for him. He said, follow me. Matthew said, okay. Then he used him right away through a party. Jesus went in, sat down with all of his friends, 
I want to encourage you to think through the person that you've given up on or you think that wiping would just be too much to reinvite. And to go back and tell them and say, you know what? Anytime, anytime you can come, I'll throw a party. You're always welcome, right as you are. Because we know God won't keep them where they are. But they're welcome, right as they are. And if you are someone who is outside of Christ, if you're Matthew in this situation, if you look back on your life and you see the choices you've made and you think, yeah, I mean, there's not enough mats in the world to clean up my shoes. Oh, friend. I hope and pray you would take something away from this portion of Scripture. And as you see Matthew, just follow Christ because he invited him. I pray that you would respond to the Spirit's prompting today. And that you would understand Christ calling sinners to his side today. And that that includes you. Who says, come as you are. You're welcome here. Come follow me as you are right now. Now, come, don't, just come exactly as you are. Come on in, follow me. It's my hope and prayer that you would be like Matthew, that you would leave everything behind and that you would follow Christ and trust in him because you will never regret paying that price, sacrificing what you had to go hard after Christ who loves sinners like you. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you accept us as we are. Poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. We're we're grateful that we can come and lay our burdens upon you and you will take them. Thank you, Lord, for accepting us as we are. And yes, for changing us to be more like you and less like ourselves. We pray, Lord, that we would not set up a welcome mat outside of your kingdom that you did not place. We pray, Lord, that we would not be so foolish as to not tell people about you again. Because we're concerned over what cleaning process they would have to do to come into your kingdom. But may we, like our Savior, invite. May we hopefully invite, may we faithfully invite people to follow Jesus, believing, Lord, that you can save to the uttermost and do save to the uttermost for your glory and our good. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.